0: Be sure to join our Facebook group, Asset Management Mastery, where we have a great community of thousands of like-minded individuals sharing resources and best practices. Choosing the right insurance coverage for multifamily properties isn't that complicated if you know who to talk to. At the Garzella Group, we're uniquely qualified to help you navigate the range of policy choices you have, and we're committed to saving you 30% in the process. We do intensive market research and have nationwide relationships so we can find coverage other insurance brokers simply can't. We should talk. Go to Quotenow.biz and we'll start the conversation. Today on the podcast, we have Matthew Burke. Matt is the founder, CEO, and chairman of Fairway America and Verivest. He's a seasoned real estate executive, chief investment officer, and fund manager who started and managed 11 real estate asset-based Reg D pool investment funds over more than 22 years. Matt, welcome to the show. Can you start by telling the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you do?
1: Yeah, thanks, Gary. I appreciate you having me on. We have two companies, as you said. One is Fairway America as a real estate investment manager. We raise capital from predominantly high net worth investors, qualified purchasers, family offices, et cetera started managed as you said, twelve funds, a lot of those have been debt funds in the early years, doing private money loans the last ten years or so have done a lot more on the equity side value add of of all different types. we partner with operators around the country and kind of a co gp co management model, raise the capital, do the asset management and the investor relations when our partners do a lot of the front end you know origination construction oversight execution of the business plan. VeriVest is a technology-enabled service provider providing software and and fund accounting and administration services for a lot of the same types of people. So that business kind of grew out of our practice of helping people set up funds. Coming out of the Great Recession, when we were winding a fund down, we kind of pivoted the business model, and that's how we went from debt to equity. And we started doing a lot of advisory work for small and medium-sized real estate entrepreneurs around the country who were raising capital for whatever their deal strategy was. And we basically played the lead role in helping people set up and structure their pooled investment fund. And and we started doing the back-end admin out of that. And that's kind of how Veribest came about. So all real estate focused, both uh, the investment side and the services provider side, advisory side. So kind of a breadth of things that we do between the two companies.
0: Excellent. Excellent. I, I see... And maybe it's because I'm paying attention to it more, but a lot more people are doing funds these days.
1: I'd say that's true. I think it's become more prevalent in the last ten years. I mean, when we started doing the advisory work in 2012, not a lot of people were doing it, but I think more and more people do it. It's it's more easily accomplished these days with a lot of the service work that's out there, and and certainly with the advent of you know the Jobs Act and the ability to do public solicitation and advertising and and rise of social media and. All of that, I think it's easier than it's been in the past to do it. Uh, but it's still running a pooled investment fund with multiple assets, multiple investors coming in and out at different times. Ooh. It's an order of magnitude more complicated, and it's a way to do it. It's not for everybody, but if you can do it well, it, running a fund has a lot of advantages.
0: Yeah, and I've, I've I've seen funds as little as like a million or less to obviously yep. hundreds of millions. You know, what are some of the key things someone should know before they start a fund?
1: Yeah, well, I think there are, I know there are a lot of misconceptions, Gary, that people have about running a fund, as I've heard them literally hundreds of times from people. So I have used the analogy a lot that it's it's kind of like having kids. I mean, you can read about, you can babysit your nephews and you can read about parenting and you can take parenting classes, but until you actually have your own kids, like you really don't know what it's like. And even then it's different stages, you know, an infant and then a toddler and then a, preteen and teenagers, different issues at different times. So like I say, it's it's not for everybody. I think among other things, you, you need to have a very reliable source of deal flow. To be able to do it i think certain asset types are more conducive to running a fund than others i think the way you structure the fund needs to be consistent with your asset model i see people mismatch the structure to the asset model i think the way you structure the fees needs to be carefully considered both from a how you raise capital standpoint and making sure you can cover your overhead standpoint there's just a lot of considerations to doing it if i had to tell you you know out of a hundred people that want to set up a fund 85 probably shouldn't and 10 or 15, you know, have the combination of elements necessary to give them a pretty high likelihood of success. But, you know, it's aspirational. So I'd say any real estate investment manager who raises money from high net worth investors at one point or another, at least thinks about the idea of setting up a fund and and looks into it. Some do it when they shouldn't and some don't do it when they could. And, you know, it's just it's an interesting sector of the market.
0: Really good nuggets in there. What are some of the key mistakes people make when they, I'm going to do a fund and you kind of alluded to it, you know, previously, but are are there like the same mistakes you see over and over again from people?
1: Yes. And I think probably the biggest one is people have this delusion that somehow if they set up a fund, then magically the money's going to be sitting there. So probably one of the most, when I ask people, why do you want to set up a fund? I'd say the most common answer I get is, well, then if I have a fund, then the money will be there. And so when I'm out negotiating with a, Seller, you know, they know I have the money and it makes it easier to tie up the deal and I'm, I am have a more competitive, I get better deals. I'm like, well, what makes you think that just because you set up a fund, the, the money's going to be there? It's almost as if it's like if you build it, they will come, right? It, raising money in an in a fund is harder than raising money for individual transactions because people are investing in a strategy right? And and it's a blind pool. They don't know which assets you're picking and choosing. You're just giving parameters around the types of deals you're going to choose without specifically naming the assets. So I would say there's a misconception that a lot of the investors they've had historically that want to put money into specific individual deals will come over and put money in the fund. And my experience is that that's a fairly low percentage. I mean, some will, but many won't. So I'd say have, making sure that you are very clear on how and where you're going to get the capital before you spend all the money and time to set the fund up in the first place is important. I think people confuse the economics of how a fund works because it's a pool. You know, It's like a mutual fund, right? You All of the income and expenses get pooled into that entity, and it's not a deal by – so people translate – the way in which they're used to the deal-by-deal economics working and extrapolate that to a fund model and it really doesn't apply. So, you know, there's just a lot of things that are different about it that people don't fully appreciate in the beginning that we try to help them through and make sure they're clear on what they're getting themselves into before they do it that makes a big uh, makes a big difference in their ability to succeed.
0: Yeah, and I've, I've done a ton of deals and we've never had the money up front. We've always syndicated, we've always told the seller that and i don't think i've ever lost a deal because i didn't have the money i might have obviously lose deals because someone's willing to pay more or yeah hey, they may have two billion dollars in their coffers which even if i yeah. had a fund i could never compete with them anyway
1: yeah yeah i think that's accurate and i mean i've found that end of the day you know if people who are really good at syndicating and uh, don't necessarily need to make a leap to a fund, and and oftentimes, you know, a lot of, look a lot of successful fund managers, I'd say Fairway included, we syndicate as well. So some deals we put in funds, some deals we syndicate. Kind of depends on the situation. I mean, it, it can be a nice augment to what it is that people are doing to help them scale their business, but it's it's not the be all end all, you know, that's going to solve all their problems.
0: Let's talk about fees, so someone can kind of wrap their head around that if they wanted to start a fund or not. So let's say you know, we were going to start a $75 million fund. What are, and I know there's a range, but what, you know, talk about some of the fees that are involved in starting a fund and maintaining a fund.
1: Yeah, I'd say setup fees can range anywhere from 10 or 15 grand on the low end to I've seen people pay literally hundreds of thousands of dollars to set them up. I'd say on average 20 to 30 grand, you know, it's probably a reasonable expectation just on organizational setup costs, legal fees, et cetera. Ongoing basis, You're, you'll have, depending on how you structure the fund, you'll at the minimum have tax returns you have to file, All right, You have filing fees and so forth with the cities and states and municipalities. A lot of times people will use a fund administrator, which I think is a best practice and something people should do, especially if they haven't done it before because it's different and complicated. So there's fund administration fees. Those are relatively modest, can range from 5 or 10 to 25 or 40 basis points to kind of depending on size, higher basis points for lower amounts. There are other fund expenses that you can put in there, but I think sometimes the manager will absorb those costs at the Opco level as opposed to putting them in the fund. So it really depends on how a manager wants to set it up. Fund management fees, I'd say, range 1% to 2% is a pretty normal range. Some people will exceed that. Others believe that trying to charge no fees is better, and they'll try to backload the fees if they have the capacity to do it you know and then you have affiliate related fees so depending on if people have say a property management company that's going to be managing the assets that affiliate might charge those property management fees there's construction on a value add deal where you got a big construction component you might charge fees you know on an override for the construction costs and things like that so it really depends on the on the deal transaction, but there's certainly a range of fees that I would consider to be reasonable in the marketplace that balance being aligned with the investor and covering costs that the manager has to incur in order to execute the strategy in the first place.
0: You mentioned tax returns, and so you know a typical tax return on a deal could be five six thousand, but if you're doing audited tax returns, you're talking like seven times that amount. On the fund, do you, do you typically require audited financial uh, terms?
1: If if you're a registered investment advisor, you have to do an audit. Most real estate managers, especially first-time managers, are not RIAs. You know, and this gets into legal advice, and which I never give. And so people need to check with their own lawyer. But I'd say my experience is that most real estate managers running a real estate fund don't become an RIA, and therefore it's an elective choice to get audited or not. So some of that, Gary, it comes down to you know if investors want it and you think it's important to have an audit to help you know show transparency and so forth to the investors, then it becomes a, a choice for the manager to make. But to your point, it's expensive. So it, it adds considerably the fund expenses and thus hits the return to the investors. So it's kind of a trade-off, right, for the investors. Do you want to pay for an audit and lower your return to gain the transparency? Or do you want to not do that and get a little bit of a higher return it's kind of a case-by-case case thing for managers most of them don't do it if it's a small fund below 25 or 50 million bucks and it's a first-time deal i'd say most of them don't
0: how is due diligence different as i started looking into starting a fund you know i i've seen all these different companies that offer like due diligence on a fund or on, on a deal could be twenty, thirty thousand. talk about that what's spent and what's needed
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, from an investor perspective, if I'm a high net worth person considering a fund investment, right, you you can't really dive deep into the underwriting assumptions on any one deal, right? You're really looking at the manager. What who is the manager? What is their track record, which is a much harder thing to do for an investor, which is partly why it makes it harder to raise capital in a fund, right? Because they they can't look at the deal. There are services out there that people can pay to have background checks done and things like that. In fact, Verivest does some of that. Look, it can cost 20, 30, 40, 50 grand for a fund manager to go out and get a report, right? That's gonna be something that they can hand to their investors. I don't really know how valuable those end up becoming for individual investors. I know that if you were gonna run, if you're gonna try to go raise the capital through a broker dealer, right? Then then that almost becomes mandatory to do that. In fact, it will become mandatory because the BD wants to have that report, you know, a qualified opinion from a lawyer that they can hang their hat on, right? If something goes wrong. But an individual manager that's that's raising the capital themselves and not doing it through a broker dealer, I'd say almost none of them are going to pay tens of thousands of dollars to go get a report like that. So it's tough. I mean, it, it's harder for the investors. I'd say the good managers, they have the ability to provide information to those investors about historical track record on deals that they did prior to the fund, right? Because presumably if you're setting up a fund, you're doing something now in a pooled format that you've already done on a syndication basis, right? So you have some track record that you can represent to those people, like, and the best managers will keep track of that stuff and be able to show it to them. Ideally, you can get that corroborated by a third party. That can be tough to do, right? Because it's just, it's not cost effective. So bottom line, man, it's hard, but it can be done.
0: Right. Anything else I haven't asked about funds that our listeners should know?
1: Well, I think a big part of it comes down when you're structuring the operating agreement is you know not only fees but control rights. Right. What control rights are you given to the investors? You know how removal of the manager provisions. What decisions can the LPs you know participate in? What limitations do you put on the ability of the manager to make changes to the investment strategy, to the fee loads, et cetera. So how you structure that operating agreement, balancing investor need for some amount of, you know, control and oversight to providing the manager with sufficient discretion to execute the strategy, that can be that can be a tricky, you know, component of doing it. And it's an important one. Fees obviously are are a big deal and and you have to pay close attention to that, which we've talked about before. I'd say those are the big ones, right? How are you going to raise the money? What are the operating control provisions? How are they going to do the due diligence? What are the fees you're going to charge? Yeah, making sure you've got the infrastructure from an origination standpoint to do a sufficient amount of volume to justify the cost associated with the deal in the first place. I mean, like I've made this mistake before. We've launched funds where we just ended up not having as much product as we thought we were going to have. And now you've got, you're spreading your fixed costs across a much smaller number of deals, which of course hits the returns heavily if you don't have sufficient scale or volume to do it so that that's a big consideration as well
0: yeah and now more than ever i know I, talking to a few people that are starting funds they think there's just going to be a wave of distressed debt and I have no idea how many deals I'm going to have this year. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's crazy.
1: Yeah. I mean, and that's the hard part, right? If you're starting a fund in today's environment, you know, I think people can get, people ask me that too. It's like, Matt, when's the best time to set up a fund? And I'm like, well, you know, there is no perfect time to set up a fund. It's a little bit like the old Chinese philosopher that said, you know, when's the best time to plant a tree? it's like, well, the best time was 20 years ago, but 30 years ago. But you know, next best time is either today or you know soon if you're going to do it. But yeah, it, you got to time it with the market and understand what deal volume you've got. And that's really hard to do in today's economic environment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And like you mentioned before, to our listeners, know your documents, know your PPM documents. I've invested in a deal and 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 we have major problems with the operator and we're talking about bringing you know taking taking over and kicking him out and i know those documents are hard to understand and they're boring and they're long but read your documents
1: everything's fine when when everything's going good right it's like but when something goes sideways it's like you pull the documents back out and go okay what control rights did we have again in there Like, you know, what can we do? What can we not do? And we have co-manager relationships with a lot of people. So, you know, what's in those documents is really important, especially when things get tough. So know your documents on the front end. That's a very good advice. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Matt, well, I appreciate you coming on the show and adding a ton of value on, on funds and what to do, what not to do, when to do it. So thank you so much. Can you tell Mm -hmm. the listeners where they can find out more about you and your companies?
1: Yes. Well, it's fairwayamerica.com is uh, one of them. The other one is veribest.com. You can reach me at matt.burk, M-A-T-T dot B-U-R-K, no E on the end, which happens all the time, either at fairwayamerica or at veribest.com. Either one of those will get to me. So
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This is Gary Lipsky signing off. I'll be back next week with another informative episode on the Real Estate Asset Management Podcast. To all of our listeners, thanks for joining us. And if you like this episode, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and like, subscribe, and review this podcast as it will help us grow our audience and reach more people. And if you'd like to learn more about what we do at Break of Day Capital, head over to our website, breakofdaycapital.com and sign up for our newsletter and or fill out our investor application. We'll talk to you next week.